No, I think we got it. All right. Awesome. I'm David. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Thanks, everybody, for having me here today. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure, an honor. Um, it's, you know, it's, so, it's always so much fun to speak or just even be a part of these meetings that originate out of the United Kingdom. Um, it was, I say this a lot when I speak, like what a blessing the pandemic was. And we're still sort of in it a little bit, right? We're getting every, I don't know how it is across the pond, but everybody's here sick, right? COVID's still around and the flu. And, but, you know, this, this wonderful thing that happened out of this really scary and, and, and um, sort of dangerous time was AA had to stop meeting in a lot of places, right? We were all in this comfort of being together in church basements and hospital conference rooms and all these things. And all of a sudden, a lot of us couldn't do that anymore. And so what did we do, right? Because we're all pretty smart cookies. We uh, jumped into Zoom and we picked right back up. You know, it was it was not as wild as Bill talked about in, in the big book when he, he talks about, you know, would AAs going off to war be able to s- survive when they were on their own? We didn't have to go off to war, but we had to be off on our own, very isolated. And so what did we do? You know, we got in here and we got into Zoom. And it really opened up this global community that has been so amazing. You know, I've got friends and there's like a number of familiar faces here. Maya, thanks for, for you know, uh, and Charlotte for asking me to speak. And it's good to always see you in meetings. And um, it's, it's just a pleasure to be a part of this global community. And, and it's great coming to meetings and being able to share at meetings that are about our real problem and our real solution. Um, so, um I also have to say my wife is on here. She, she, she sometimes comes to hear me speak, sometimes not. And she, so I should say, I guess I've been clean and sober since March 21st of 2004. So coming up in 20 years and my wife is 17 years and she is um, not as outspoken as I am. She's a little more understated, right? So sometimes uh, Captain AA, she'll call me in our house because I won't stop talking about the big book and recovery. She's like, okay, okay. But it's always a pleasure when she's here and she's willing to endure, you know, me talking about this thing that, that saved both of our lives and really gave us a second line. And, and also my buddy, my partner in crime, uh, the other David here, David Glasgow's on here with me. And, and um, actually, I think he shared here not that long ago and, and, uh, and sort of lit the, the roof on fire as, as, as he does. But I was just thinking it's such, such a pleasure to be in here with like local friends and international friends and people that I've never met in person, but I've formed like friendships with. And all coming out of this craziness of the pandemic. And, and, and David and I have known each other out here, and we're in rural Illinois, sort of far, far away from Chicago. And he and I were always big into the big book and trying to carry the message out of the big book. And you guys know what it's like. There's a lot of meetings out there where that's not very popular. People want to just sort of sit in meetings and complain and talk about going to 90 meetings in 90 days. And we watch people come in and out, and it's kind of sad, right? So David and I always bemoaned, where are the other big book people? And we're always trying to create the fellowship around us. And we got a little posse of other people who love the big book too. But we're like, man, where is everybody else? And guess what? Because of the pandemic, we found them on Zoom, right? Now we got so many meetings where we can come and we can talk about real recovery out of the book. And we can see people getting sober on Zoom, never been to a live meeting. And it's amazing that this is a possibility. Go to live meetings too, guys, if you've never been. They're incredible, right? I have a nice blend myself, and I find a lot of benefit in both. And when it's, it's terrible snow and cold and miserable out today, it's so wonderful to be able to just sit in my pajamas and jump on a Zoom meeting, right? But still have this great, amazing experience of being eyeball to eyeball with everybody. Um, so 
you know, in 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 figuring out what what to talk about here today, um, Maya was was corresponding with me a little bit, and 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 she was saying, "Well, do something related to the spiritual experience," and I was like, "Ah, oh, yes, always. It's my great. It's my favorite topic to talk about. Why? Because it's the entire purpose of us being here." Right? I mean, it really is. We were just, David and I were just at a treatment center last night, and, and I was trying to, we always talk about the first step there, because we really want people in treatment to understand the problem they might have. I can't say the problem they have, because they may not be real alcoholics, right? But we're going to lay out for them what is real alcoholism. So we take them through a very in-depth dive into step one. But then we want, you know, there's not a lot of hope in step one. We're supposed to be kind of in a bad mood by the end of step one because it's all about coming to terms with like conceding that I'm a real alcoholic and that I'm hopeless and I'm powerless and, and I'm filled with these bedevilments. So there's not a lot of fun in the conclusion of step one. But if I can start to get into step two, there's a lot of hope in that, right? Because if I figure out that I'm powerless and all of a sudden I come to terms with maybe there's some power that can help me. I can get from that sort of bad place into a, into a good place. And so we really heavy up when, when we're talking in treatment centers and, and in newcomer meetings about step one. But we give that hope. We always end with, with page 27, which is my favorite page in the book. You know, and I'm sure I'll get to it at some point today. But, you know, just a sort of sneak preview, if you're not familiar, is where Dr. Jung is working with Roland Hazard. And he's talking about what it's going to look like to have a vital spiritual experience. And if you are new, or maybe you're not new, maybe you've, you've been around, but you've never really worked big book recovery, I'm going to let you in on a secret that's sadly a secret that shouldn't be a secret. The entire point of Alcoholics Anonymous, the entire point of 12-step recovery is to have a spiritual experience. It is to have a spiritual awakening. It's not just to become physically sober. And what this really dovetails with, you know, as mentioned, Maya said, hey, why don't you talk about something related to spiritual experience? And so I wanted to look for something on that topic that maybe just, I don't want to say different angle, but maybe just a different perspective on the same content. And so I was looking in as Bill sees it. And, and as she mentioned, there's a reading out of Bill's, uh, as Bill sees it from page 171 called Dividends and Mysteries. And it was like, ooh, right? Sort of like mysterious title, mysteries and dividends. But it was really cool. And let me, let me read a little bit to you guys and, and, and talk about why I think this is a great um, piece of writing here. It starts off with saying, the AA preoccupation with sobriety is sometimes misunderstood. To some, this single virtue appears to be the sole dividend of our fellowship. So what this is saying is that, you know, it is not a great comprehension. We don't even understand sometimes. We must misunderstand why, what are we targeting here? And in this writing, when, when, when Bill's talking about sobriety, he's really talking about physical sobriety versus recovery. And he says, to some, this single virtue appeals to, appears to be the sole dividend of our fellowship. So what he's saying is, when I get better and I stop drinking, right, it, it, it's suggesting that people believe that's the only thing that I get out of it. Remember, he talks about this elsewhere in the big book. Remember the part where he's like, ain't it grand, the wind stopped blowing, right? It means I'm not drinking anymore. That way in which I'm damaging myself and all the people in my life, yeah, that stopped. 
coming out of that storm cellar and seeing all the wreckage of how the tornado blew through, right? So what Bill's talking about here is this is just one little dividend. He goes on to say, we are thought to be dried up drunks who otherwise have changed little or not at all for the better, right? And what a sad story that is. And, and, and I don't want to get too soapboxy, but I can't help myself either, guys. This is the case for many people that I see in our rooms, right? And this is our responsibility and our obligation to make sure that people don't get stuck in this, right? This is exactly the message that we were trying to carry. I'm not going to say trying to carry. This is the message that we carried at the treatment center last night. Now, whether any ears heard it, I don't know, you know, but, but we're pretty practiced. We do the same spiel every time. We really want people to understand, yes. You are here. I shouldn't say one has to determine for themselves. I'll speak only for myself in the first person. Yes, I am powerless over alcohol. I have an allergic reaction to alcohol that I break out in craving. Yes, I'm powerless to alcohol and that I have a mental obsession. When I stop, I can't stay stopped. That is a significant problem, right? That I am powerless over alcohol. And when I drink, I'm tearing down my life and everybody about me. And I do want to receive the dividend of not drinking anymore. Of course I want that. But my greater problem, guys, as a real alcoholic, is what's described after the dash, that my life is unmanageable. And, guys, it's not unmanageable as the result of my drinking. Now, listen, did my drinking exacerbate the unmanageability? You bet your bippy, of course, right, with a big exclamation mark. You know, my drinking made everything worse. But my unmanageability was there well before I took my first drink, right? That unmanageability or our spiritual malady, our spiritual illness, that was with me almost since I was a little boy. Some of my earliest memories are some of those feelings, some of those bedevilments that I remember, you know, being three, four years old. I think, you know, just when we start to, to have a few memories that are tucked away back there, you know, feelings of less than, right? Feelings of fear, feelings of not measuring up. You know, and even difficulties with personal relationships. I was even a bully as a little boy. You know, I could go on about these bedevilments. But I need, to, I need to be concerned with the powerlessness, but I really need to be concerned with the unmanageability and the, and the spiritual malady. And, and, and Bill talks about this in the book, too, guys. He says, and I'm paraphrasing a lot. I may open it at some point, but, but I think if you follow my paraphrasing, I'm not going to say anything objectionable here. Bill talks about there's an order of operations to getting better. He says, I've got to straighten out spiritually first, and then I'm going to straighten out mentally and physically. That's the real goal here, guys, is to straighten out spiritually, because if I straighten out spiritually, I can achieve anything. The drinking for sure, the drinking for sure earned me my seat. That's what allows me to be a member of the fellowship. According to our third tradition, the drinking for sure earned me my seat. But the unmanageability, the spiritual malady, that's what makes me eligible for the solution. Okay? If I wasn't spiritually ill, if I only you know, had a physical allergy, then I'd feel okay most of the time and I'd realize drinking wasn't a good idea. Because when I drank, you know, I drink and drive or I, you know, get into fights or there's other stuff. It's injurious, so I won't, right? Complete abstinence works for people that aren't spiritually ill and don't have a mental obsession, right? 
But I've got to focus on the spiritual malady. And, and consider this, and I consider it for myself. I'm asking this question to you guys as much as I'm asking it for myself. Anybody ever put down the alcohol for a little while and pick up some other kind of dangerous habit? Yeah, and I'm not talking about just other intoxicants, guys. What are the things that we do when I keep going into plural, right? What are the other things that I can do when I'm not spiritually fit or that I did? Certainly, you know, I abused other drugs, yeah? What else? Treated women like they were drugs. What else? Fist fights, bullying, irresponsible spending, not taking care of my health, right? Exercise bulimia, right? Anything that could be done in extreme, overeating, right? Any extreme. I will do anything I can to try to not feel the way I feel. And most of the time what I feel is restless, irritable, and discontented, right? When I'm not with God. Because these days I feel pretty good because I work pretty hard in this program day in, day out, you know? So coming back to the reading here, we're thought to be dried up drunks who have otherwise changed little or not at all for the better. Right? That's the guy who's coming out of the storm cellar saying, ain't it grand, the wind stopped blowing. Yeah, the drinking has stopped, but there's still all this wreckage. It's still a wasteland. Such a surmise widely misses the truth. We know that permanent sobriety can be attained only by a most revolutionary change in the life and outlook of the individual by a spiritual awakening that can banish the desire to drink. This is the difference, guys. And it gets a little tricky sometimes, even when you're reading the big book, and I love it, how Bill uses the word sobriety. But when you look at the larger context of the big book and, and our other literature, really we're talking about the difference between sobriety being physical sobriety, which is I don't drink anymore, and recovery, which means I've had a complete psychic change. That I've had a vital spiritual experience, that I've had a spiritual awakening, the result of which is that everything on my insides is radically different than it was before. Because, guys, I still have the physical allergy today. You know, almost 20 years in, if I, if I took a drink, I'm very likely to break out in craving. There's no cure for this. This is biology. This is how my body is put together. And, and this is why I'm very, like, if I have to go to the doctor and get a procedure or a surgery and they're going to put me under or I have to take some payments afterwards, I want to know exactly what they're going to give me. And I want to know exactly how much and I want to know how I'm going to feel when I wake up and I want to know how quickly I can get up the pain meds. I have a very healthy fear of not wanting to feel altered, right? Because I'm afraid I'm going to break out in craving. I still have it. Now, do I have a mental obsession still today? That's been abated because I took care of my spiritual condition, right? The greater part of the, the true gene of alcoholism is the mental obsession. There is no physical problem if I don't put it in my body. But how I'm going through life, spiritually unfit, is always going to activate that mental obsession. And I'm going to pick up again, guys. Hmm? So I got to get spiritually right. And what does it look like? How do I achieve this? Hmm? I have to aspire for more. What did we learn in the big book? Well, certainly, and, and if I'm repeating some of these concepts of the first step over and over and over, it's generally by design. I just love pounding home like these, these critical components of step one again, because that lays the foundation for me being able to move on in steps two through 12. Why on earth, if I, it, it doesn't take someone who is um, wanting to recover from drinking to think about this logically. 
If there are a series of steps, one through 12, how could I possibly move on to two if I don't understand number one? So coming in, I need to understand step one. And I really need to understand that my greater problem is that spiritual malady, right? that spiritual illness. And then I got to set about doing something about it. And when I do get spiritually fit, that's the promise of the 12th step, right? That we're going to have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, the singular result of these steps. Then like Bill talks about here, it's going to banish the desire to drink. I don't have a desire to drink today. This is different. Does it ever occur to me to have a drink? Yes, every once in a blue moon. Sometimes it occurs to me to have a drink when someone's talking about drinking a lot in a meeting. Or sometimes on a beautiful spring day, once we're beyond this weather, and if I go to you know, downtown Chicago and they have the beer guards on the sidewalk and it's a sunny day and they're drinking those wheat beers with a little piece of fruit, and I'm like, man, that looks good. That's not a desire to drink. That's a thought to drink. And then what's my next thought? Eh, not for me. I don't dwell. There's a significant difference, guys, once we're recovered between a thought and an obsession. Right? If I was unwell, what would my obsession tell me to do? Beer, 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 right? But that's not my experience. My experience is, eh. And, it, and sometimes I do recoil from a, is it from a hot flame. Right? But I have an adverse reaction at this point that's banished my desire to drink. Bill goes on to say here, you are asking yourself, as all of us must, who am I? Where am I? Where do I go? I don't even like a whole lot of questions. I don't encourage a lot of questions from people when I'm taking them through the book, unless it's a question about coming right out of the book. Some of these philosophical questions, who am I? Where am I? Whence do I go? Are, are there really ever any good answers for these? I don't, I'm not sure that they are, and I'm not, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not sure I'm going to do any justice answering them. What I do know is that action leads to enlightenment that I do know that action is going to tell me what my belief system is. You know, David and I were just listening to Mark Houston. Some of you guys probably heard of him. He's passed on for many years now, but a brilliant speaker on big book recovery. And um, one of his talks has been circulating lately. He talks about my actions show me my belief, right? Which means what? It means am I actively praying and meditating to be in, in communication with God as I understand him about all matters of my life? Or am I saying, well, God, yeah, keep helping me with that drinking problem. But, eh, you know, my old lady, I'll, I'll handle that. You know, God, yeah, please help me so that I eat moderately today. Ah, but, you know, that whole thing at work with my business partners and how we're arguing all the time, I, I'll handle that. That's a show of my current state of agnosticism. Right? Because I'm not bringing God actively into all my affairs. I don't believe that he can help me. Right? So you can ask these questions. It says, as all of us must, but the process of enlightenment is usually slow. Right? The process of spiritual awakening is usually slow. Appendix 2, The Spiritual Experience, I'm sure most of you have read that. If you haven't read it, it's a page and a half, and it's so simple for us. One of the things that the spiritual experience appendix talks about beautifully is it says the theme of the whole page and a half is change. I'm going to change. 
when I have my spiritual awakening, my vital spiritual experience, I am going to be a different person. But the other really important point that it makes in there is it, it's so the, uh, the um, appendix two spiritual experience was added, you know, after the first printing, the first printing thought the only way that we were going to get healthy, that we were going to get recovered in AA is if we we're going to have an experience like uh, Bill Wilson, like in the hospital, thunderbolt moment. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to rush out and help people. Right. We all want that. Who didn't want that when you first came in and looked at all the steps on the wall and talked to your sponsors, all the work I was going to have to do. And I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be a lot of work. It's going to take a long time. I wanted to just get out of bed and be healthy. I want instant gratification. So people, when they first read the big book, you know, back in, uh, in, in the 30s and the early 40s, they thought, oh, I must not be getting better because I didn't have a tumble out of bed experience. So what Bill writes about in the spiritual experience appendix is that how most of us get better is gradually. And it talks about the educational variety of, um, of the spiritual experience. And that comes from, um, you know, it was inspired by uh, William James. And, and William James in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, are um, mentioned a couple times in the big book. And actually, after almost 20 years, I got it right over here. It's, wait, it's in one of my piles of books. My, my father and I, my, my dad has become a practicing Buddhist over the years. And he and I are reading this book together, which is a really cool thing that we're doing from our two different spiritual journeys, right? So we're reading varieties of religious experience. It has nothing to do with anything, just sort of a fun t uh, you know, tidbit to add. But what, what spiritual experience talks about is that most of us just get better over time. And it's and that is a dividend of us doing the work. This is all action based. I love that we have a chapter called Into Action. Imagine if that chapter was called Into Thinking, Into Consideration. Too much of that. We got too much of that. You know, again, like I said, I get a sponsor who's asking me like, well, why? Well, how about? Well, could I? I'm like, I don't know the answer to any of those things. Maybe you can, but not with me. Here's what I got for you. I'm going to make sure you understand one. We're going to make sure you understand two, going to make sure you understand three, and three being a commitment to move right into four. You're going to write four. We're going to talk about it in five. You're going to go home. You do six and seven in an hour. You're going to take your four-step list. You're going to convert it into an eight-step list. You're going to start making amends in nine, and then you're going to live in, the, in disciplines of 10, 11, and 12. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Let's go. 30, 60, 90 days. Ain't no waiting because we die quickly. We must get well quickly. All right? So Bill goes on to say, but in the end, our seeking always brings a finding. Ah, Joe and Charlie, and I'm just like name dropping here, like it came from a cool sober party. If you've not listened to Bill, uh, Joe and Charlie, the big book comes alive. You can find it on podcast. Guys, my number's in here too. You can hit me up on WhatsApp. I'm happy to send you links to any of these people or, or, or uh, resources that I mentioned. Joe and Charlie, big book comes alive. If you never listen, it's 10 hours it will change your recovery. It did for me. They take the big book, right, and they break it down to make it so simple for, for those of us who want to make um, things so complex and so difficult when they don't need to be. And, and Joe, Joe McHugh in that he talks about the difference between, you know, sort of seeking and finding and how we go looking, you know, for God as we understand him. And he just does such a beautiful job of, of explaining it. Bill continues to say, these great mysteries are, after all, enshrined in complete simplicity. So what great mysteries are you talking about? Well, he's talking about those questions. Who am I? Where am I? Whence do I go? 
He's saying these great mysteries are, after all, enshrined, surrounded in complete simplicity. The willingness to grow is the essence of all spiritual development. So there's another spiritual concept. If anybody here ever took martial arts, you know, like karate or kung fu or something, and you do all of these moves. And, and so this is attributed to some uh, martial arts teacher probably from thousands of years ago. The student says, you know, master, you know, I do this move like a punch. You know, what does this mean? Why am I doing this move? And, and, the, and the master says to him, oh, sorry, my, my dog medication alarm was going off. The master says to him, he says, practice this movement 10,000 times and the answer will be evident. So the answer to who am I, where am I, whence do I go, is never going to be satisfactorily answered by me or my sponsor or one of my running buddies or anybody else in the rooms. But I will get these answers out of moving my feet and getting into action. And this is our obligation to. So I talked a little bit about the first step right, the physical and the mental powerlessness, and then the unmanageability, and it jumped a little bit to the 12th step, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. So, so the 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, and careful how you read that. Now, and all you wonderful British folks have this beautiful accents and dialects, and you all speak the proper Queen's English. Over here, all us dumb Americans, we speak very uh, sloppily. And a lot of times in, in meetings, someone's reading, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and it sounds like, they, like they're saying, as a result of these steps. No, no, that little word, is that a preposition or something? Everybody remember from school? As the result of these steps, guys. That is the promise of 12-step recovery. The promise is that I will have a spiritual awakening as the singular result of taking the steps. And I will make this guarantee and this promise to you here today, guys. If you do all this work thoroughly and honestly, not just taking the steps, but living the steps, I guarantee you'll have your spiritual awakening. I've been, I've been around a couple decades. I mentioned that a few times. I've never seen anybody fail who did all the work, all the time. What I've seen is many people fail. Sadly, many, many, many more people fail than succeed because they cut the corners. Right? They wanted to say they were hung up on God in the third step. That's really getting hung up on the first step. Right? They were too afraid to do the fourth step because they weren't willing to live out the commitment of the third step. Right? They were too afraid to go out and make the amends in the ninth step because they had too much fear about going and righting the wrongs of the past. But we don't have a choice here. The second part, there's three parts of the 12th step, right? So having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps, comma, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. And by the way, I don't like the word try. Those of my age or older, I'm 50, I'll be 51 in a few months. We all know, because I have to do this because it's Jedi David G., what did Yoda say about trying, right? Do or do not. There is no try, you know? And I throw a lot of, I'm, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not melding uh, Jediism with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just at rule 62-ing it a little bit, keeping it light, right? But I say these Yoda quotes at my sponsees sometimes just to keep it light and to break it down and to keep it simple. Don't tell me about how you tried to, to call a newcomer. Tell me that you called a newcomer. Don't tell me you gave the newcomer your phone number because we know that's worthless and the newcomer never calls. Tell me how you got the newcomer's phone number and you called them, right? We must carry this message to alcoholics. There are so many of them that are out there suffering. And a friend of ours out here, minor, is, is sponsee of, of other Davids, she talks about this all the time. The 12th step is not an option. Wrong O word. The 12th step is our obligation. If I came in with an empty cup, devoid and completely empty of all spirituality, and I came into you and I said, David, please help me. Christine, please help me. Connie, Alika, everybody, please help me. And you guys brought me in and, 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 and you know, enshrouded me in the fellowship and helped me understand service and got me into the program of recovery. You're filling, filling, filling my cup up. And I need you to fill my cup because my cup's empty when I come in. But by the time I'm into the ninth step, my cup is as full as it's ever going to be. And it's time for me to start pouring it out. Right? That's my expectation of my sponsees. By the time you're into the beginning of the ninth step, and again, 60 days, could be less, right? start praying for a sponsee. Start, start praying. Right? I still do this today. Right? When I, like lately, I've been saying I'm not helping. I, I'm not actively at the moment helping anybody through the steps, like today. Could change tomorrow. I could have three new guys tomorrow. That's how it goes sometimes. But today, I don't have anyone to set an appointment with this week to go through the steps. I'm praying. I need some new guys. I need to. This is my obligation. I cannot continue to live in self, which is my fundamental problem. We're told about this in the book too, right? 60 through 62. My major problem is me. Completely consumed with self. And I came in and, and said to all you guys, I have a major problem with self. Please help save my life. And then you guys did. Help me get to God. And God really saved my life. Couldn't have done it without you guys. And then, because I'm so grateful, what do I do? Don't sponsor anybody. Don't take them through the steps. There's a great study, guys. If you go to silkworth.net, there's so many great resources on there. My sponsor turned me on to it a few years ago. And it talks about this study. You know, it was an informal study. I don't think it was done through university or something. It talks about these sort of four buckets of people getting through recovery. You know, the first group of people, all they did was go to meetings after they got out of treatment. And, you know, like, you know. 5% success rate, something like that. And then they had, um, <clears throat> they had uh, another group that went to meetings and, um, you know, got a sponsor. And it's basically the same thing, like 5%. And it wasn't 5%, but basically very low recovery, okay? Then you had group three of these people that they went to meetings, they got a sponsor, they worked the steps. And surprisingly, guys, still very low recovery. What about group four? Group four went to meetings. Group four got a sponsor. Group four worked, took the steps. And then group four took other people through the steps. They carried the message to alcoholics. This thing only works consistently. If I take the steps and then do the work, the work is not taking the steps. The work is taking others through the steps. Right? Yes, I have to continue to do the work. I, I got to get better in steps one through nine. 
That's what gets me spiritually fit. But then the daily disciplines of how I construct my life, living in 10, 11, and 12, that is what keeps me spiritually fit, right? I must do that. It, it makes me so sad, too. I see people come in, and they, um, they, they stop drinking like this reading talked about. They get physically sober. Life gets a little better. A f- maybe a few of those bedevilments go away or at least get muted a little bit. And if you don't know the bedevilments, second paragraph, page 52. I don't think I'm going to have time to get into them, but take a look at them. Text me if you want to chat about them. People come in and they stop drinking. They get the job back. Mama lets them back in the house, right? Kids aren't looking at them with hatred anymore. And they're like, well, I'm not drinking anymore. I still don't feel so hot, but I think this is as good as it can be. And so people stay satiated with not drinking. And this is what Joe and Charlie talk about, too. And, and this is a little bit borne out. I think this thing started to shift. As I understand it, I, I try to be a historian. So every, everything I say, guys, got a little asterisk, right? If I missay something or mispronounce a name or misstate a year, it's, it's well intended. In the 1970s was the onset of the treatment center movement, right? Nixon and the Hughes Act and all this stuff very much changed how we approached recovery. We had an epidemic. We still have an epidemic. We know this, sadly, right, 50 years later. But the shift started to happen with a mentality and a thinking that began in treatment centers and then came into AA, that this was about not drinking. And people became satisfied with not drinking. They got what they needed. They got their empty cup filled, you know, halfway, a third of the way, quarter of the way. And they said, this is good enough. That is not what the program is in this book. This is not a program or a a lesson or a textbook about how to stop drinking. This is a book, an experience of the first 100. It was about having a life-changing spiritual experience. And the result of having a life-changing spiritual experience is that, like I read, the desire to drink again goes away. We must get back to our roots. We must get back to our basics. I can't help but soapbox a little bit because people are dying on our watch, guys. They're dying in Zooms. They're dying in church basements. They're dying when they show up for one meeting and don't hear the message, right? They hear us complaining about, oh, my washing machine broke down, or I got to take my cat to the vet again, or all these other things we love to complain about. Yeah, a couple of you are laughing, but we know you're laughing because you've been in those meetings. We were just in a meeting, David and I and some other friends out here, a pers- in-person meeting um, on Thursday night. And it's a meeting that's been eh, small because it's limited, eh, but we brought some friends, and oh, it's like a bang-up meeting. Everybody's coming out of the book and relating stuff, but it was like, man, look at In this day and age, we can meet in a church basement and actually talk about AA out of the book. It was amazing, right? But people are dying on our watch, and this is the opportunity now. Well, we can all get stronger. We can get better. And we need to help people understand that first step. And we really need to help people understand what the 12 steps going to look like. And I mentioned page 27, and I got to go to it because it's my favorite thing in the world to talk about. Right? If you ever heard me do a, a main share before or even a share back, I probably talked about this. So on page 27, the story really starts on page 26. This is the story of uh, 
Carl Gustav Jung, Dr. Carl Gustav Jung, working with a man named uh, Roland Hazard. Now, this is before Alcoholics Anonymous existed, right? And Roland was a very wealthy uh, American businessman. And, um, and this is in the 1920s, so, you know, 100-ish years ago, give or take. He was, A, wealthy enough, uh, and, and, and B, alcoholic enough that he was able to go over and actually meet with Carl Jung to try to get some help for his alcoholism. And, and if you don't know who Jung is, guys, and Joe and Charlie do a brilliant job explaining this too, I probably, I'm looking, I've got lots of contemporaries here. I've got lots of old people like me, but I see lots of young faces too. So I'm going to tell you, okay, who was, who was Dr. Carl Jung? He was a disciple of Sigmund Freud. Even if you don't know who Freud was, you've heard of him. We all heard of Freud in school, right? Freud is considered one of the greatest psychiatrists and psychoanalysts of all time. He really invented sort of modern day psychoanalysis. You know, he, he came up with these concepts of the superego and the id and all these things and laying on the couch and talking about all those things that happened to us when we were children, very painful stuff. You know, that's what Freud was a champion of to try to help people get better. And, and uh, Freud had two brilliant disciples. One of them was a guy named Adler, and the other guy was a guy named Jung. Now, Adler was with Freud. Everything could be solved through enough psychoanalysis, enough laying on the couch. My mom didn't hug me enough. I was picked on in school. You know, all these very serious things that stick with us over the course of our life, you know, and maybe some pharmacology in there, you know, deficiency of Valium or something. Jung... As a result of some interactions with the aforementioned William James, Jung, even though he's a brilliant psychiatrist in his own right, guys, if you haven't heard of Jung, I'm telling you, if, if Freud was 1A, Jung was 1B. Okay, sorry, you guys still with me? I had a little wink in my internet there. Okay, good. Sorry about that. So, um, Jung came to believe that some of our human problems could be resolved with a spiritual experience, okay? Not just pharmacology, not just going through psychoanalysis, okay? So Roland went to see arguably the most brilliant psychiatrist on the planet for help with his alcoholism, and he was in his care. And after he left, what do you think Roland did? He drank, right? That's really what's described on page 26, the top of page 27 is when Roland goes back to Dr. Jung and he says, why can I not stop drinking? And here's what Jung said to him. If you got your book, second paragraph from the top. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed in him with a clang. Some of you here, like me, have seen people die of alcoholism. My best friend from high school died from this disease, alcoholism. My best friend from college died from alcoholism. Right? My buddy David here, several members of his family, I'm sure some of you have seen it. This is a killer. This disease is a killer. Right? So the doctor said, I've never seen anybody with alcoholism like yours recover. Think of another, God forbid, imagine you or someone you loved had cancer. And, and I go down to Northwestern Hospital in downtown Chicago, or you guys go to the best teaching hospital in London, and go see the chief of oncology. Imagine if they said to you, 
I have never seen anybody with cancer like yours recover. How would you feel? Death sentence, right? This is what Dr. Jung said to Roland. You are going to die. I've never seen anybody that drinks like you get better. So he said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Okay. Here and there once in a while. Now, remember, this is pre-AA, guys, pre-12-step recovery. So Dr. Jung's saying, here and there once in a while. Alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Vital, guys, means like life-fulfilling, life-saving, right? Spiritual, it's very hard to describe for me still after all these years. I say bigger than us, bigger than human. And an experience is an event, right? So a life-saving, bigger-than-human event. Here and there, this is what some alcoholics have had once in a while. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. This brilliant psychiatrist said, these are really rare, and I can barely explain it to you. Phenomena. It's like, They appear to be in the nature of huge, huge, not modest, not minor, not relatively speaking, but huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. This is what it looks like, guys. This is the promise of doing all the work thoroughly and honestly and having the spiritual awakening. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That means, guys, ideas, the crazy thoughts up here, you know, arguing with myself, coming up with twisted scenarios, emotions, those yucky feelings that are in my heart, and attitudes, those old beliefs and prejudices that are rotting in my gut, right? Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding force of lives in these men, my psyche, my head, my heart, my gut, how it's propelling me through life, are cast to one side. And I skipped the word suddenly because I already told you in the spiritual experience it tells us it's rarely suddenly, it's typically gradually, but they get cast to one side. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. And here's my experience. My personal experience and the people about me, I've never seen anybody's feelings, thoughts, and beliefs, attitudes get cast aside and replaced by similar or worse ones. I've never seen that. Not if we're doing all the work all the time. I've only seen people get healthier. That is the change, a profound alteration in my reaction to life coming out of my thoughts, my feelings, and my attitudes. This is the promise. This is what it's going to look like. It's a whole new David. It's a second life in one. Because I have a completely different way that I interpret things, that I look at things, I respond and react to them. And here's a really important thing, too, that that he concluded on this, that, that Dr. Jung said to Roland. He said, in fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. There are no human power, right? He was a human power. He couldn't do it for Roland. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic your description. Why? Because I bet those other drinkers were the certain type of hard drinker. They look like us. A lot of times they drink like us. 
But when they're sufficiently motivated, they can moderate or stop altogether. But not us, not those of us, not me, speaking for myself, that I'm spiritually ill and physically and mentally powerless. No human's going to save me. It just doesn't happen. This is the promise that we need to give to everybody. This is the education. This is where we're falling down. Okay, and here's what I'm going to leave you with today. I'm going to, I'm going to have one more point here, and then I'm going to wrap up and, and look forward to the sharebacks. There's 60 of us here today. How fun. I'm going to tell you today, pay attention now. Get your pencils ready and your calculators, because you're not going to believe me. Today, the 60 of us are going to solve the entire planet's alcoholism problem. Here's how we're going to do it. Okay? Yeah, I know. You're laughing. Just wait. I started playing with some numbers a few years ago. I was thinking about this. And I was like, okay, if over the course of my entire recovery, I only carried the message really effectively to three people. You know, I sponsored three people, got them through the steps. They made all their men's and living in disciplines at 10, 11, and 12, right? They got to God. If I only did it with three people, they stayed healthy. And then they carried the message to three people. And then they carried the message to three people. Right? We're all going to do only three people. But it's going to go 15 times down the line, starting from me. You guys remember this from grade school math, exponents. So that'd be three to the power of 15. So it's three times three times three, 15 times. Starting from me and the first three people I sponsor. Here's how many people it is. 14 million. 348,907 people, right? I know I see a couple of you are like, what? Google it and we're done. Three to 15th power. But wait a minute. There's 60 of us here today, guys, times 60. Now, there's about 8 billion people on the planet, and they say about 10% have this disease. So it means we've got to carry this message to 800 million people. Well, 14,348,907 people times the 60 of us, we're all going to start with just three, is 860,934,420 people. We're going to overshoot the target by 60 million. We got to do this. This is our obligation. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much.